consider the high priestly ministry of Christ, as we consider the heavenly tabernacle within which he ministers on our behalf, that you would encourage and exhort us, that you would encourage us that we have what we need in the midst of our wilderness wanderings, that you would exhort us to draw near to these heavenly high places and to find help. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may not have noticed it. You may not have noticed it, but there is a riddle in this passage. There is a uh, little biblical difficulty or puzzle to think on. The main point of what we were saying is this. We have a high priest, that's Hebrews 5 through 7, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne and the majesty on high, that's Hebrews 1 and 2. And he is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The puzzle is this, the question, the riddle is this, why a tent? Jesus enters into heaven itself, and heaven itself, in which Jesus ministers on your behalf, heaven itself is described in this passage as a tent. That's actually puzzling. And the reason why it's puzzling is because in every other place in the New Testament, when heaven is described, or the people of God are described, or the author tries to make some use out of Israel's sacrificial and ceremonial system to describe some reality in our present context. In every instance, when the holy sanctuary is used as a metaphor for things that have occurred among us, the reference point is always the temple. And that makes sense. Ezekiel sets you up on that trajectory. Jeremiah sets you up on that trajectory. There's a progression in the way in which God accomplishes his work. He starts with the tent, but the tent like gets upgraded, right? It levels up. And the leveled up version of the tent is the temple. The temple is the place. And when Ezekiel looks forward to a third temple, to a, a better temple, a temple that is to come, he describes it as a bigger, better, stronger, wider temple. It's as if Hebrews has kind of moved this backwards a bit. It's as if we've regressed. Because we don't get a temple, we get a tent. Heaven is a tent. Why? Why does Hebrews use this language to talk about us? Why does it exhort us to draw near to this heavenly tent and find help from Jesus Christ, our high priest? Why does Jesus minister in a tent? That is our question, our thesis, if you will, for this morning. Jesus Christ ministers to us in a heavenly tent, and he does so because we are pilgrims without a pilgrimage. We are pilgrims without a pilgrimage. We'll look at each of those ideas as we move forward and find why is it that the Lord has pitched in our midst a tent for the people of God. First, we are pilgrims. Hebrews is very consistent in talking about us as the people of God. In fact, when it uses the language of tent, 
rather than temple, it is attempting to reorient us, to remind us of how it's described us, uh, how it's described the people of God earlier in this book. The difference between tent and temple, uh, both the tabernacle, the ancient tabernacle that Israel had while it was wandering in the wilderness, and the temple, both of those sanctuaries, those holy places, both of them say the same thing about God, right? They're structured pretty much the same way. There's a couple of differences in the furniture and the one versus the other, but basically structured the same way. But one of them, uh, and, and, and as they're structured, they tell us th- stuff about God. They tell us that God is holy and that he, we cannot enter his presence apart from blood. And Hebrews gets into all of that in Hebrews 9. But what the, tent, the way the tent and the, uh, tab, uh, and the temple differ is they say, they say the same thing about God, but they say something different about us. The temple is appropriate for a kingdom people. It's appropriate if you have a walled city. But a tent is for wilderness wanderers. The tent is for pilgrims. If you have a nation, you don't need a tent, you need a temple. If you don't have a nation, if you are still waiting for that place to call your own, you need a tent. You need something that can go with you. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews 3, this is actually how our author describes the church in this present age. You want to know who you are as the people of God? What does it look like to be the people of God when Christ has come but has not yet returned again? How do we think about the church in this present age, whether it's 70 A.D. or 2017 A.D.? How do we describe the people of God? We are like Israel in the wilderness. Chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, people of God, today, May 2017, this very Sunday, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. Where is the church? We are in the wilderness. It's hard to believe that because we live in a world of microwaves and digital watches, But we are in a wilderness. We are wilderness wanderers. We are our basic identity in this world. We are pilgrims. We are pilgrims seeking a holy land. We are on a journey with a definitive destination to which you are currently striving. You are not home yet. You need to keep going. You need to persevere. You need to keep on the path in the wilderness. You cannot grow weary or you will die. That's the church. I was uh, talking to some of our younger members of our congregation last week. This is going to come as something of a shock, but one of our younger teenage teenagers 
told me that they don't like The Hobbit. At our church, this is at our church. And the reason they don't like The Hobbit is because it's basically a repeats itself, the same thing over and over again. They walk for a while and then they kill a monster and then they walk for a while and then they kill another monster and it's just the same thing over and over and over again. And the Lord of the Rings is just the same thing on a bigger scale, right? Bigger monster each time. But that's life. That's what life is, right? Life is a brief uh, series of rests between trial. You walk for a while, you kind of coast for a while, and then you hit some turbulence, some difficulty, sometimes big, sometimes little, and the thing that you want is rest. Life is a, life is a journey. That's why we use those metaphors. That's why we speak that way, because that's what it is. It's a journey, and you walk for a little while, you rest for a little while, and then you hit a monster. And you walk for a little while, you rest for a little while, and then you hit a monster. And you have to keep going. It doesn't stop until you get to the promised rest, the rest that is at the end, the final rest, which from Israel's perspective is the promised land, and for our perspective is heaven itself, the new heavens and the new earth. In the midst of this wilderness journey, in the midst of this pilgrim, uh, this pilgrim wandering, in the midst of this seeking heaven, we are called to a specific kind of duty. The Christian life, if you are a wilderness wanderer, if you are a pilgrim in the wilderness seeking heaven itself, then that tells you something about the nature of the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life is perseverance. It's continuing on. It's going through the wilderness. It's conquering the next monster, the next temptation, the next difficulty trial that we face, whether it be a king of this world a prince of air and darkness, or the temptation of our very heart. You face it and you persevere in the midst of it, seeking Christ and his help and his hope and coming through the other end over and over and over and over again until he returns. That sounds bleak, but that's the Christian life. It is a wilderness Wandering, You are a pilgrim in the wilderness, and there will be no final rest until you enter the promised land. What you must do is you must persevere. Here is the hope. Here is the bright side. It's a dark picture of what the Christian life is. But here is the bright side of that description. You are a pilgrim, you are a wilderness wanderer, but a tent has been pitched by God in your midst. You are a pilgrim, but you have a tent. You have a tabernacle that is among you. You have a place to go where you can find God himself. You have a tent, and so though you are a pilgrim, you make no pilgrimage. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by a pilgrimage? Israel, uh, especially when it gets into the kingdom, okay? So if you fast forward from Exodus 33, which Mike read for us earlier, if you fast forward a couple of hundred years, you will be in the kingdom. They conquer the land. They build a kingdom. Uh, Jerusalem becomes the capital city, and a temple is built. The people are at rest, God says. You are at rest, he tells Solomon. 
David was not a man of rest, he was a man of war. But Solomon is a man of rest, you have rest, and so you get a temple. A temple is the sanctuary of God appropriate for a people at rest. So they get a temple. And when they get that temple, something new happens. If you want to be in the presence of God, if you want to, as our psalm that we open the service with, uh, a psalm of ascents, by the way, a psalm that would be sung um, in the circumstance that we're on pilgrimage, in the circumstance we're about to describe. If you want to be in the house of the Lord, you have to get on the highway. You have to go somewhere. It requires traveling. It requires traveling plans. In fact, if you remember in Luke 2, do you remember when uh, Jesus' family, Joseph and Mary, they go down to Jerusalem? They do it every year. They do it every year because in Deuteronomy 16, the people of God are instructed to do so every year. Every year, and Mary and Joseph are faithful to God's word, so every year they make a journey to Jerusalem at one of the feasts, one of the three main feasts. And they worship God there once a year after a big long journey. They have to, the people of God, because they have a temple at that time, because the place where God's glory cloud dwells, the tent of meeting at which you would meet God himself, is in a temple. And that temple is in a particular place, Jerusalem. That is a burden. That is a difficulty. It's a difficulty you don't have, but it's a difficulty that they do. And it's precisely because of that burden that we see popping up throughout the Old Testament, high places. Remember those? Remember the high places? Um, get a big hill, you're closer to God, we'll put a high place. That way you don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. And God hated the high places. Why? Because he was in his temple in Jerusalem. You had to make a pilgrimage. You are a pilgrim, but you make no pilgrimage. Notice where the sanctuary is. Back to Hebrews 8. Where is the sanctuary? Where is its location? Where do we go? when we go to the house of our God. When we sing Psalm 122, when we're on a journey to the house of the Lord, where do we go? Where is this sanctuary? 8, chapter, uh, verse 5. They serve, the Old Testament saints, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Their tent is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. The point there is the contrast that exists between their tent and ours. Their tent is the shadow and the copy. Ours is the real thing. Ours is the heavenly tent that was being copied. Heaven itself here is described as a sanctuary. It is God's sanctuary. It's where the, it is where the people of God access the special presence of God and it takes place in a tent. Our tent is heaven itself. When we draw near to the household of God, we are drawing near not to just to this place. We're here in this place, in a physical church, in a physical place with an address, right? And a phone number and a registry and a tax EIA. Like we have stuff that anchors us into this world, but we know what's really going on. Hebrews is telling us what's really going on when we gather in this location. 
we are drawing near together to the very presence of God in his heavenly sanctuary. Something else is going on beyond the physical stuff we see. We are entering with Christ into the heavenly tent. We're doing so spiritually and not physically. You're not physically transported. This is not an out-of-body experience. But something beyond your body is happening to you. You, by the power of the Spirit, are drawing near to Christ himself. You are entering into the heavenly tent. You are doing, as it's described later on in Hebrews 10, you are drawing near with true heart and full assurance of faith, your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, your bodies washed with pure water. You are drawing near to the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh that is into the very house of God. Heaven is a tent. Where is our tent? It is in heaven. It is not in Conchahokan. It is in heaven itself. That is where we are headed. So notice first, you're pilgrims without a pilgrimage. First, you are without a pilgrimage because when you approach God, you approach heaven itself. Second, notice, notice what the uh, priest does. Notice what Jesus does in this heavenly tent. Okay, so the, uh, the tent that we approach, the sanctuary that we approach is heaven itself. And notice that Jesus does heavenly things there. Our, high, our tent is heavenly and our high priest is heavenly. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Back in 8.1, Jesus, our great high priest, is seated at the right hand of the throne of his majesty and a minister in the holy places. What's going on in this tent? What's going on in this tent is that Jesus himself, the risen son, is serving God and serving you. That's what a minister does. That's what a high priest does. That's what a high priest did in Israel's time. They did it as a shadow and a copy. Jesus does it as the sum and the substance. But what a high priest does is serve God and serve you. He mediates. That's a word we don't use uh, very often. We don't often use the word mediator. He is a go-between. He is a broker. He is somebody that brings you into the presence of God and brings God to you. He allows a connection to take place, a relationship to take place that wouldn't otherwise be able to take place. And he does that by serving both God and us. He serves God by offering, holy, uh, as, as it says in verse 3, uh, offering gifts and sacrifices. We'll get to that in Hebrews. It's in Hebrews 9. We're told the gift and the sacrifice that Jesus offered. We're told in Hebrews 7 that he offers himself. That is to say, Jesus, in an effort to bring you into the presence of God, gives to God that which is most precious to him. He gives to the Heavenly Father so that you might dwell with the Father. He gives to the Father that which is most precious to the Father, that is to say, himself. That's what's happening on the cross. Jesus is offering himself, his own righteousness, his own beauty, the excellence of his perfection, his obedience to the law. He's offering himself to God as a pleasing sacrifice on your behalf so that when God looks at you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he sees that which is most pleasing to him, his son. 
That's why you can enter this heavenly sanctuary with boldness, more boldness than Aaron was able to do. Aaron only had the blood of bulls and goats. But you enter with the pleasing presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings himself this great gift, this great sacrifice to God so that you can enter with boldness. And what is more, what is more, he, in the midst of that, helps you draw near. He serves God, the Father, and he serves you by understanding all your weaknesses, by sympathizing with your failings, by pronouncing forgiveness over your sins, and by bringing you in to the very presence of God. Finally then, notice your pilgrims without a pilgrimage because your tent is in heaven, because your high priest serves in heaven, and because this is a tent itself. Notice that the tent is a tent. Notice that the sanctuary is a tent. Why is it a tent? Because that's what you need. The fact that the sanctuary is a tent tells you something amazing about the nature of your relationship to Jesus Christ. If you'll flip with me in your bulletins back to Exodus 33, the passage, Moses gets it. He serves a shadow and a copy, but he gets it. He gets what wilderness wanderers need. He gets what pilgrims require. The drama in this passage is really interesting and worth reflecting on more extensively. Uh, if you would like to do that for homework, let's say, uh, or for devotions, Exodus 32 through 34 would be a good place to camp out. If you're familiar with Exodus, you know that it's actually two main parts. We did uh, most, we spent most of our time in Exodus in the first part, and we ignored this huge chunk of the book, the chunk that occurs right after this passage, after chapter 33. We ignored this huge chunk of, of the book, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's an inverse repetition of what came right before. Right? Go with me here. Israel comes out of Egypt. They are wandering to promised land, journeying to the promised land, and Moses goes on to the mountaintop and receives instruction about the tabernacle. Here's how you're going to build this tabernacle so that I can go with you on the rest of the journey. Here's how you're going to build the tent and what it's going to look like. Moses receives those instructions because they're going to need that tent in order to make it to the promised land. They're going to need this sanctuary. They're going to need God to go with them on the journey while they're journeying to promised land. Then what happens? The golden calf. Then Israel, while, while, while Moses is getting the instructions on the mountain, Israel sins a great sin, one that they should have uh, not done, a, a terrible sin of idolatry. And God says to Moses in our passage, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Amidst all of those nations, did you notice what changed? God is still going to fulfill his promises. He's still going to bring Israel into the promised land. But something changed from the original promise that they were given in Egypt. God isn't going with them, an angel is. I will send an angel with you. 
I will send an angel before you, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. The presence of God is a dangerous thing. God knows that, and he decides not to go with Israel on the journey. So that huge description of the tabernacle that we got in the previous chapters, don't need it. Blot that out. Wipe that out. There's, there's going to be no tabernacle. There's going to be no sanctuary. No tent need come. Because God is not going with them on the journey. Moses knows that this is bad news. Moses knows that if you are a pilgrim people, you need the presence of God. Moses knows something that we so often forget in our lives together, that we need thee every hour. Every hour. And we sang those words, and perhaps you looked at them as I did, and I say, that's hyperbole. Every hour, poets. But Moses knows something about us. Jesus knows something about us that we often forget that that is exactly true, that that's not an overstatement, it's an understatement, that without the presence of God, we cannot make it. We cannot persevere. We will turn back. We will turn aside. We will grow weary. You need the power that only God can provide. And so Moses, in this chapter, beseeches the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And God mercifully hears Moses and tells Moses, I will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, belaboring the point, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. It's not worth going if God won't go with you. Do not bring us up from here. Why? For how will it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you are going with us so that we are distinct? People of God, why a tent? Because though you are a wilderness wanderer, though you are a pilgrim, God comes with you on the journey. You do not need to take a pilgrimage to be in the presence of God. The ordinary means of grace by which we draw near to Jesus Christ, the things that we are doing even now, bring us into God's presence by the power of the Spirit. You have full communion with the Father. The Westminster Standards, as we were looking at them this morning, reflects on this. The the greater magnitude of the full communion that we as New Testament believers have, the access we have so that we have a greater confidence, a greater hope, as uh, the author puts it here, greater promises. These are these ordinary things, communion, worship, fellowship, prayer, the sacrifices of faith, these ordinary things, you need to, we need to all rethink what they mean. They are not mere religious duty. They have a purpose. They're not things that we do because we're Christians and we were trained to do it. They have a function. They have a purpose. They're a means to an end. And the thing that they accomplish is bringing you boldly before the throne room of God and getting help from that God in your time of need. This is how God preserves us in the wilderness. If you think you can do it yourself, if you're going through the Christian life, and constantly telling yourself, I need to be stronger. I need to be better. I need to stop doing this. I need better habits. 
if you're going through the Christian life and just making New Year's resolutions every week, you need to realize the power that is available to you through Jesus Christ. The way we grow as Christians is by drawing near to him. The way we grow as believers is by drawing near and him ministering to us. The way we are equipped is by relying on his power. How do we do that? Those simple things. That's what your devotions are for. It's not to make you feel better. That's what you are, as parents are doing. That's why God has put you over these children, so that you might encourage and mature them so that they can persevere in the wilderness. That's what you Sunday school teachers are engaged in, in teaching the word of God. You are giving them the equipment needed to draw near in faith and to persevere unto glory. These things that we do every week, they are a journey to heaven itself in which we find heavenly power and heavenly blessings given to us while we long for the promised rest. So not then heaven in the end, heaven all along, all along the way. Father, we pray that you would give us